Well, as we prepare to look at Lord's Day 44 and the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, we're going to read together from Colossians chapter 3. Now, Colossians chapter 3 is a beautiful chapter of the Bible in that Paul has been addressing to them who they are in Christ, what it is that Jesus has done for us in restoring us from our rebellion and making us the children of God, making us to be his beloved ones. And he warns them in chapter 2 not to uh, embrace legalism, not to embrace these outward laws that, uh, that seem good in the eyes of men, but that really are empty. It's just about the the way we appear rather than where our heart is. And so in chapter 3, he urges us to embrace a daily conversion that arises not on the fingertips, not in the things that we outwardly do, but from the heart, and that flows from the heart in all things. So we're going to read the first 17 verses of chapter 3 of Colossians. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, Do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Looking then to Lord's Day 44, which you can find if you have a Psalter hymnal on page 56 in the back. Lord's Day 44 brings us to the Catechism's discussion of the Tenth Commandment. We've looked at the first nine. We've seen how they apply both negatively, putting off the old sins, and positively putting on the new image of Christ. And now Lord's Day 44 says, what is God's will for us in the Tenth Commandment? The answer is that not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in my heart. Rather, with all my heart, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. 
But can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly? Well, no. In this life, even the holiest have only the small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Well, then no one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so pointedly? Two reasons. First, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. And second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Amen. Brothers and sisters beloved of our Lord, this tenth commandment, when viewed alongside of the other nine, is something of a category of itself. The first four commandments, of course, call us to evaluate and examine our relationship with God, right? What does God desire of us, both inwardly and outwardly, in word and in deed, in our relationship with Him? Commandments 5 through 9 look at our relationship to our neighbor. How should we treat our neighbor now that we've been renewed to bear God's image? In each of these commands, we're called to evaluate hands and heart, deeds and desires. But then we come to the tenth commandment. And we find God starting with the heart. All of the others started with our outward behavior and worked inwardly to our heart from there. But this one starts at the heart. Do not covet. Do not illegitimately desire that which God has not given to you. This is a commandment that starts with the heart and relates both to God and our relationship with Him, and to man, and our relationship with them. To what category, then, does this belong? How do we define it? What do we do with this command? But you see, that's the point. This final commandment, it undergirds and it enwraps all of the others, emphasizing to us that it's not sufficient with any of God's commands, to just look at what we do, to just look at how we appear. It's essential in all of the commands of God's law that we look at the heart, at the desire, at the relationship that our deeds have to our faith, to our trust in the Lord. And what this commandment ultimately shows us is that God's people, because we're grateful, because we're thankful of all that God has done for us in Christ... God's grateful people destroy their corrupt desires. That's our theme. God's grateful people destroy their corrupt desires. And negatively, we'll see that that in this, Christ calls us to reject our desire for sinful rebellion, which is really what covetousness is. But then positively, He calls us to renew our desire to submit to God obediently. But we should start at the beginning. What is the command as it's stated? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. But what does it mean to covet? Kids, can you define what it means to covet? Ultimately, it means to desire something wrongly. It's not a legitimate, it's not an okay craving to have. It's not okay 
Because coveting expresses discontentment, right? It expresses not being satisfied with what God has given me. If I'm coveting my neighbor's house, it means I'm not satisfied with the house that I have. I think his house is nicer or bigger or has features that I wish I had. And so I'm not content. I'm not satisfied with what I have. I'd rather have what he has. I long for that instead of what I have. And the problem with that is that God's the one who gave me what I have. And so when I covet what he has, I'm implying that God has made a mistake. That God has not given me what I truly need. That God has shortchanged me. Now understand, it's not coveting to legitimately desire something. If my car is starting to get pretty old, it's starting to get problematic, and I save up money to buy a new one, it's not coveting to go to a, a car lot or to look online for a car and to go and look at them and compare the features and then buy one. That's not coveting. It is coveting if my car is just fine. But I look at my neighbors and I think, oh, his is so much better. Oh, I wish I had that one. Oh, look at mine compared to that. Ugh, piece of junk. That's coveting. Coveting occurs when I desire what I don't have in such a way that it removes my contentment for what I do have. And so I scorn the gift God has given me. I imply that God has not given me what I truly need or deserve. Paul warns against that in a passage that we uh, kind of briefly considered when we were looking at the Eighth Commandment against stealing. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, those who desire to be rich, that's coveting of money, right? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. He's talking about people that are not content with the wealth they've been given. And so they fall into covetousness. And he says that will lead them into ruin and destruction. You see, it's not really about the money or the possessions. And as a matter of fact, coveting can go well beyond that. It can be a coveting of power or a coveting of popularity or a covering of abilities. Regardless of what we're coveting, it's really a root. It gets down to the root of sin. What is sin ultimately? It's a violation of God's law, rebellion against His commandments. And why do we rebel against God if not to obtain what He has withheld from us, right? That was the original sin. You may eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden, except that one. And so what's the one fruit that they decided they couldn't live without? What's the fruit of that one tree? That's Sin, right? Desiring what God has not given you. What He has forbidden. And that's what coveting is. He's given you all of this stuff, but you want that which He hasn't given. And that lies at the root of sins on every commandment, doesn't it? A man desires more stuff, covets the things that his neighbor has, and so he, he embraces a greed. For that which he doesn't possess, and thereby he breaks the eighth commandment. Another man desires passion and pleasure and enjoyment that he doesn't have. And so he gives in to unchastity and lust, and thereby breaks the seventh commandment. Someone else wants power, or wants freedom to be his own master. 
And so he might try manipulating even God, a rebellion against the second commandment. Or he might rebel against the authorities, a breaking of the fifth commandment. That desire that constitutes coveting is a root from which sins against any commandment can grow. So ultimately, our first point is that coveting is a desire for sinful rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against God because everything, think about this, everything you possess, God gave it to you. Everything you're able to do, all of your abilities, all of your opportunities, all of the connections you have in life, God has ordained every one of those for you. And on the other hand, God has withheld from you things that other people do have. Maybe they, maybe this one has a more successful business. Maybe that one has two brand new cars. Maybe this other one over here has so much land while you have so little. God gave that to them. But in His wisdom did not give it to you. When we desire something that God has not given us, that's always the way of death. It's a striving that can only bring pain. It's a longing for gain that will ultimately bring loss. But on the other hand, Paul says... Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. But having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Hear what he's saying there. Contentment, or godliness with contentment is great gain. Because in contentment, kids, you know what that means, right? It means being satisfied with what you have. Maybe your neighbor has this fancy bike with all the bells and whistles, but you have a bike that gets you down the road, allows you to get good exercise, and it works. And you're content with that. You're satisfied with that. Contentment is a recognition that we have enough. Contentment comes to him who is satisfied that God has given what he needs. He's not striving for more. He's not wishing for more because he knows that God was generous with what he gave. For, he says, we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Contentment begins with an honest recognition that we are dependent in all that we do for all that we have on God. There is not a single thing that you possess on your own. You understand that? Right? Not one of your talents, not one bit of knowledge, not one bit of strength, not a single opportunity is yours Because you reached out and took it. God gave it all to you. He put you in the family where you've been raised. He's the one who gave you the strength that you exercise, the talents that you have. He bestowed those on you. The the wealth or the poverty. He's the one who ordained that. Even our sickness or our health. He determined what each one needs. And so the apostle says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Now, of course, we want more than just food and clothing. But he's pointing out everything we have God ordains for us. And all of that stuff, it's all passing away. It's all temporary. It's all just for the moment. God has entrusted it to us right now for the things that we're called to do. But someday soon, either Jesus is going to come back and cleanse this world, which means all of that stuff's going to burn up, or he's going to take us to be with him through death, and we're going to leave it all behind. It's that old joke about... You know, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul trailer behind it. When we go to be with the Lord, all of this stuff is going to be left behind. So we need to recognize God is giving us this stuff in trust. And He's giving us exactly the stuff that we need for right now. 
We can only recognize that if our attitude is heavenly rather than earthly. See, covetousness is an earthly way of viewing life. It's, it's a desire for gathering together all the things and the experiences that we can touch and taste and feel. Covetousness is about here and now. But eventually all that here and now stuff is going to pass away. Our possessions will grow old and wear out or break or be given away. Money will be spent or it will be lost. Power will pass on to others. Pleasure will be fleeting. It will depart and leave only a memory. All of it will be nothing when we die. God wants better for us than to be consumed with that stuff that is really ultimately only momentary. He's created us to be creatures of eternity. And therefore He wants us to long not for these momentary riches, but for riches that will never pass away. For joys and treasures that are kept in heaven at Christ's right hand. That's why He said in our Scripture reading, Set your mind on things above, not on the things on earth. Don't long for, don't crave the things of this earth that are passing away. Desire not the things that are going to be destroyed when He cleanses the world with fire. But set your mind on the things above. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you get that? That's earth shattering. If we truly have faith in Jesus, we've already died. And in God's sight, in His judgment, we're already sitting at Christ's side. Ruling with Him in the heavenly places. That's where our truest being is. That's where our identity is. That means, kids, that means that your sports that you love so much, that's not what should identify you. Your friends whom you love so dearly, it's great to love them, but they're not your identity. Nor is your identity that of a Dutch person or of an Iowan or of an American. That's a secondary identity. It's great to be American. We're blessed with so many freedoms and privileges. But ultimately, that's not who we are. Who we are is those who are joined to Christ. Who we are is those who are destined for an eternity in the presence of God. Who we are is those who were made to and are being renewed to bear the image of God. That's who we are. And that's what must delight us. And therefore, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. Back in Lord's Day 33, we talked about conversion. We talked about how that's a daily thing, right? Every day we're to put off the sins that once characterized us, the brokenness, and we're to put on that new image made after the image of Christ, right? Well, that's what he's talking about here. He says, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he lists those things that are consistent with the old man, with the sinful nature, Sexual immorality, uncleanness, lust, evil desire, activities and desires that, that are characterized by death. He says, kill them. Get rid of them. That's what comes natural to you, but, but clean house. Because that's part of your past. That's what used to, formerly did, characterize you. When we walked the path of disobedience, when we were foolish and deceived, when we delighted in the things that God hates. But now, he says, verse 8, you yourselves are to put off all of these. 
Why? Since you have put off the old man with his deeds. That's your history. That's not who you are anymore. Many of us, we can't remember the time we didn't trust in Christ. But even so, we have the remnants of that old man. Because that's what we were conceived and born in. Is sin. Rebellion. Evil. And so all our lives, we're going to be trying to put put that away. To get rid of that. That's why we're tempted to lie and cheat and steal and all those other sins. It's because that old man is still struggling for prominence within us. And he says, you need to daily put to death that old man. Because that old man is a rebel. He is striving to destroy the image of God in you. He is striving to lead you into rebellion against the Lord. And that's not okay. We're to reject our desire for sinful rebellion. Our catechism asks, why does God want His law preached so pointedly? And part of the reason is so that we can see that we are, in fact, sinful. Yes, you grew up in the church. Yes, you were baptized before you even knew what was happening. Yes, you grew up in a covenant family, went to catechism class, attended a Christian school, went to a Christian college, perhaps. You're surrounded by Christians, but you're still from a sinful stock. You're still filled with sinful desires. And all the days of this life, you're going to fight against that. And so the key is he wants us to fight against that. That's why we're to not covet. That's why that emphatic command at the very end. Because in our hearts, we, we still fight against that rebellion of covetousness. We will sin. We will. There's just no getting around it. But First John 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That's his desire for us. Isn't it? He wants us to live a life of perfection, a life of Christ likeness. But he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the whole world. In other words, we should strive to not sin. We should not allow sin to define us. But when we do, because we will. We should acknowledge that Jesus has already paid the price. And so it doesn't condemn us anymore because He was condemned for us. God's law, especially this tenth commandment, reveal our desire for sinful rebellion. And that should bring us to our knees. Asking for continued forgiveness but acknowledging with gratefulness that Jesus paid the price. He already eliminated the debt for our sin. Praise the Lord. And therefore, we turn to the positive side of this commandment in gratitude, in thankfulness for the fact that Jesus paid our debt. It's not enough, says our catechism wisely, and says Paul in our scripture text. It's not enough to put off, to put to death, to turn from the rebellion of our sin. God also calls us to turn to, to put on the alternative. So our catechism reminds us that God wants the law preached, not just so that we can see our sin, but also so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image, until after this life we reach our goal, which is perfection. Time and again, God's Word tells us, those who love God seek to do what He commands. Jesus Himself said in John 14, verse 15, If you love me... Keep my commandments. 
The Apostle John says in 1 John 5 verse 3, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Repeatedly he tells us, if you love the Lord and you want to show that you love the Lord, keep His commands. We don't like to hear that, do we? We like to hear, trust in Jesus and all will be well. And that's true. That's where our salvation is found. That's the gospel. But that's not the extent of the gospel. Because the gospel says God loved you so much, He paid the debt to reconcile you to Himself. And then He filled you with the Holy Spirit so that you would begin to learn how to live a life that's pleasing to Him. Right? That's part of the gospel too. Now understand, when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, He doesn't expect that in this life we're going to do so perfectly. If we could do that, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. Right? But the Lord does expect us in our halting, struggling, imperfect way. He expects us to strive toward perfection. He expects us to be unwilling in our sin. Hating the fact that we've fallen again. Despising the fact that we've stumbled into yet another rebellion. So He calls us to renew our desire to submit obediently. That's our second point. This, after all, is why Jesus came, to lead us into a new relationship to God and to sin. First, First John chapter 3 says, You know that Jesus was manifested to take away our sin, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Again, that does not mean that we never commit sins. It means that the sin does not identify us. It does not characterize us. It's not who we are. Jesus came to forgive us from our sin, but also to begin delivering us out of it, to make sin ugly to us, to make it hateful in our hearts. Again, he says in that chapter, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Because we are in Christ, sin has no mastery over us anymore. Right? You understand, when, when a person is outside of Christ, it is impossible for him to not sin. Everything he does is tainted by, driven by, his rebellion against God. He has no choice because he is so steeped in that wickedness, that rebellion. But when Jesus takes us for his own, when he imparts to us the faith that unites us to him, he suddenly gives us a new freedom. And suddenly, we're able to sin or not sin. We can still rebel, but we can also repent. We can still disobey, but we can also begin to obey. And again, we're still learning. We're still growing. We're infants learning to walk. But we're beginning to learn to walk. We're beginning to learn to live according to the righteousness of God. To show the love of Christ. And that delights the Lord. It's the pleasure of any father to see his child beginning to bear his image. Beginning to take up that which delights him. Our catechism concedes that our obedience won't be perfect. In this life, it says, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. However, we do make a start, don't we? With all seriousness of purpose, it says, we begin to live according to all, not only some of His commands. After all, we become God's children. 
And as his children, we're called to obey him. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, we're called to conform not to the evil desires that once filled us, but to the holy image and perfect will of our God. So this is the positive half of that commandment. Having put to death the desire for rebellion, the desire for that which God has withheld, now we put on that which belongs to our heavenly nature, that which belongs to the image of God. Paul again addresses this in Colossians 3. Putting on of the new man, he says, begins with knowledge. Isn't that wonderful? We have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Why do we need to be renewed in knowledge? Well, it's because sin taints everything. It taints our understanding of the world. It taints our desires. It taints our pleasures. So that we have to reevaluate. We have to relearn everything in the light of Christ and who He is and what He has done. We need to be renewed in knowledge so that we can wrestle with what it means to be members of the body of Christ, with what it means to be children of the Heavenly Father, with what it means to be those who are called to rule the creation alongside of Christ. He refers to us there as the elect of God, holy and beloved. How does that affect the way you work, the way you interact with your neighbor, the way you buy things at the store, the way you research the things you're going to buy? How does that affect the way you use your money, the way you use your gifts? It affects it all. And so we're called to rely on the knowledge God gives us, to be renewed in our knowledge, so that we can begin evaluating the world and our place in it in a brand new way. And having seen who we are, having seen that our relationship with God changes everything, we need to ask now, to what are we called? Paul says Christ calls you to adopt new attitudes, attitudes that are the opposite of coveting. Look at verses 12 and following in Colossians 3. As the elect of God, holy and beloved. That's your identity, right? The ones whom God has chosen. The ones whom God loves and has set apart for Himself. They're, they're beloved and they're holy. Therefore put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Do you notice how those are all outward-facing? Right? Tender mercy and kindness, humility and meekness, long-suffering. Those are all characteristics that put me last and others first. That don't worry about my experience, my pleasure, my desires, but worry about the pleasures, the experience, the desire, the need of my neighbor. Put on that instead of selfishness, instead of longing for that which you don't have. Long to give that which you do have to others. Look. Forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Instead of coveting vengeance. Ever do that? You sit there and you imagine how wonderful it would be if you could just tell that person what you really thought of them. Or if they would get what really, what, what they really deserve because of what they did to you. Instead of that, that's the old man. That's the, the, Man made after the image of Satan. Instead of that forgiving as Christ forgave you. What's that mean? It means showing them the offense of their sin. And when they repent. Saying I forgive you. Which isn't just words. It's a promise. 
I won't raise this anymore with you or with God or with anyone else or even in my own heart. I will treat you as though you never did it. That's what forgiveness is and that's costly, that's painful, that's selfless. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That's Christ, isn't it? Love is selfless. Love is kind. Love aims for the good of another rather than the good of myself. Love puts me last and that person first. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. What's that mean? The peace of God in your hearts. That means that that you don't get all bent out of shape. You don't get all worked up when things don't go the way you planned or hoped. You don't get worked up when the decision that's made is not the decision that you desired. You trust that God is in control. Whether the decision is being made by the elders of the church or by the, the governing officials of society or by the parents in your family. You have peace knowing that God is at work in all of this. And if you're part of a a group that's making a decision and the decision goes a different way than you wanted or you laid out perfect plans, you thought, but one by one they crumbled and it all fell apart. We have to have the peace of God which only comes when we trust that God is really in control and He has our best interests at heart. In other words, it only comes when our identity is that of sons and daughters of God. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. How can you be thankful when you lose your job? How can you be thankful when there's strife in your family? How can you be thankful when you can't pay the bills? You can be thankful, brothers and sisters, if you realize that God is sovereign over this too. And that you're not alone, that the Holy Spirit is with you. And the church is surrounding you. And that God is using this circumstance, as trying as it might be right now, to build you and to strengthen you and to draw you closer to Him. This is hard. In fact, we won't, we can't, we will not do it on our own. But daily, we are called to take up these attitudes putting ourselves last the way Christ did. Acknowledging in everything we do, everything we say, that God is our King, that He is our Heavenly Father, and that He has our good in His heart. And as you do that today, it'll be easier tomorrow. As you do it tomorrow, it'll be easier next week. As you do it next week, it'll be easier next year. So that more and more it becomes second nature in your heart To show tender mercy and kindness, humility and meekness, long-suffering and forgiveness, peace and thanksgiving, and above all these things, love. He calls us to do it every day. And it is, in fact, the opposite of covetousness. Because covetousness puts me first. Covetousness is a, a desire for what God has withheld. And this is a desire to use what God has given in a way that acknowledges Him. Brothers and sisters, with this tenth commandment, God our Father and Christ His Son, seek by the power of the Holy Spirit within us to destroy our corrupt desires. He wants us to see coveting for what it is. That it is sinful rebellion that must be rejected. We need to learn to identify it, to hate it, 
to seek forgiveness for it and to diligently work to cast it out of our lives. And then the Lord wants us to renew our desire to submit obediently, seeing that God provides every single thing that we possess. We need to trust Him. We need to be thankful to Him. We need to desire to use what He's given, obeying Him and serving our neighbor. And as we do that, brothers and sisters, God will mold us and shape us more and more each day so that soon, looking on you, Jesus is the one whom they will see. May God speed the day when that is true of each one of us. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are the one who does this work within us, and yet You call us to strive. You call us to to eagerly embrace that calling. And so we pray that You would allow us to do so, and that You would give us success at applying Your commands, not just to our hands, but to our hearts, that others looking upon us might say, that one looks like Christ. That one bears the image of the Father. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.